Welcome to Trilor Talk. I'm Scott Glovsky, and I'm your host for this podcast where we speak with some of the best trial lawyers in the United States. We simply have great lawyers, tell great stories from cases that had a profound impact on them. So let's get started. Welcome to Trial or Talk. I'm very pleased to be sitting with a brilliant, thoughtful, creative lawyer, Brooks Cutter. Brooks has a national practice. His offices are in Oakland and San Francisco, but he does cases all over the country. And he's a phenomenal trial lawyer. He does individual cases, class cases and has a, a, a really powerhouse firm. Brooks, thanks for being with us. Happy to be here, Scott. Brooks, can you share with us the story of a case that had a profound impact on you? Sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, um, it's the more recent cases that come to mind. I mean, I could think of a number. I think any time you represent somebody uh, who's really been badly hurt and you have a chance to make a difference in their life, that that's has a profound impact. Uh, But most recently, uh, I represented the 12 children of uh, Cosme Camargo, and uh, we tried that case, uh, and uh, fellow TLC faculty member Susie Minlin tried it with me, and uh, and my daughter participated in that trial too, Margo, and um, we got a nice outcome for those kids, and it it was a a very impactful case for me. So... Tell us the story of how it started. So it really began with a call from Susie. Uh, she and Steve Root had uh, had a trial of this case uh, years previously and gotten a verdict and then gotten reversed on appeal and uh, were really looking for some fresh energy for the retrial. And so I was going to be kind of parachuting in just a couple months before trial and uh, with really all the discovery being done and uh, some challenges because some of the defendants had been settled with who were some of the bad actors from before. So we really had to discover the story and refocus our energy uh, completely on the one, uh, on the real, on one, essentially one defendant. And, uh, you know, the the other challenge of the case was that we were – trying to prove intentional conduct in the medical setting, uh, which is challenging given, you know, the level of trust and confidence that people have in their in their doctors and the medical community. But we really felt like it was an opportunity to do that and get, uh, you know, a significant general damages award that would make a difference in the lives of these 12 kids. So how did you go about discovering the story? So we – I – you know, I think step one is always to really get to know the family well. And so uh, I went down to the Palm Springs area where they lived and uh, spent, some, spent some time getting to know the family and really getting to know uh, the fellow who had died, Cosme Camargo Jr., who was, a, who was a, a, really a character, really a great guy, but a, a kind of a larger-than-life character, you know. He had... Uh, like a dozen children by several different women. And uh, he'd been a meth addict. He'd recovered. He'd 
worked in the family propane business. He'd coached Little League. So there, there were all these great scenes that you could think of and then also things that you thought were going to be, could potentially be devastating to his case. So it was, you know, the way we like to try cases, and you do this too, Scott, is to really try an honest case, you know, where you embrace everything about it, the, the warts and all. And so that was kind of how we had to, we had to figure out how to present this guy who we loved in a way to make a jury understand and, and see him for a real person and not just some, you know, uh, person who had been addicted to meth. So what were the challenges that you faced and how did you overcome them? So, you know, so we had a, we had challenges on liability and damages, right? On the liability side, you're you're pitting uh, a family against a, uh, the only hospital in town and uh, their staff doctor, you know. And so um, we were fortunate to not, you know, being we weren't trying the case in the in the little tiny town where it happened. We were in Palm Springs, so. You know, there wasn't like as protective a sense as there might have been of that of that small hospital where the events occurred, but uh, but nevertheless, it's always a challenge when you're trying to uh, have a jury uh, find liability against the medical community who they typically place on a pedestal. So the first challenge was to frame the hospital and the doctor as not acting in the best interest of the patient. And really in a way, and, and, and to show those entities acting in a way that didn't just threaten and ultimately kill Cosme, but that would threaten anybody, you know, to make the jury feel that, that this was, the behavior was such, and it was intentional, that, that that's not something that as a community they could embrace. How did you discover that story? So uh, Cosme had gotten bit by a spider. That was, that was our story, our truth. Their story was that he'd uh, injected himself with meth. He'd fallen off the wagon. He'd been sober for a number of years, and their story was that he'd fallen off and injected himself, and that and that's what caused uh, what developed into an infection. And he presents at the at the hospital with an inf- with either by his by all, by the family's account an infected spider bite, uh, and it quickly develops into necrotizing fasciitis which is a, a life-threatening emergency, a well-known medical emergency that when you have necrotizing fasciitis, it spreads quickly and, you know, you're, you're going to lose a lot of flesh. You have to cut out everything that even has a hint of it, and uh, you have to do it quickly. Uh, and so the doctor uh, who, he's, who he comes into contact with is a surgeon with, uh, I think he's Georgetown trained and, and uh, you know, really – good credentials, especially given where he was. But uh, I don't think he treated much necrotizing fasciitis. And he goes in and he doesn't do as aggressive a surgery as he should have. He doesn't get clear margins. uh, And he's planning to go on vacation with his family. Uh, So he sews him up without doing as thorough a job as he should have. And at that point, he's you know, we portrayed it as as him being at a crossroads, right, where he could go a couple of different directions as a doctor. He could uh, find a, a bigger hospital, you know, what they call tertiary care center, and get him get him the care he needed, or he could dig in and uh, bring it in, bring the care to the patient. But uh, the option he chose was to just keep him there overnight, uh, and then uh, not. And then as he got worse the next day, uh, 
and he was due to leave on vacation, to then, you know, about 30 hours later, just start calling around uh, to hospitals to see where he could send him after, after, in our view, delaying. And at that point, he calls a hospital in Palm Springs and, and reaches a young uh, hospitalist, uh, a Vietnamese fellow who didn't speak great English, and he says, hey, I've got this guy here. Uh, he's got a little uh, infection on his arm. Uh, he's going to probably need a little surgery. Can we send him over? He di- he, what he doesn't reveal is that two hours prior to that call, he's spoken to a, a surgeon at that hospital and, and been more honest with what he's got. In other words, he's dealing with a patient with likely necrotizing fasciitis, and that surgeon has told him, this hospital is not the place for your guy. We can't take, that's too big for us. We can't take care of it. He needs to go someplace else, like Scripps or someplace else, you know. He doesn't tell this young guy that. Guy says, okay, we'll take him. And so they stick him in an ambulance. Three hours later, he shows up at this other hospital. They're like, what? This is not what, what we were promised. This isn't what we were expecting. And sadly, they uh, put him back in the ambulance. And he goes all night till he gets to Scripps. And their uh, heroic doctor who testified at trial spends the next 24 hours just trying to save him, but can't, and he dies. So uh, our case is now just about that initial hospital, not the second hospital, which you could also argue, and who had settled out. And so we had to really put the, put the spotlight on that first hospital and the decisions, the selfish decisions this doctor made to, you know, essentially go on vacation and, and turf his patient on the basis of a lie. And we had to show that was intentional, that decision to not tell the truth. And that uh, Vietnamese doctor came in and testified, and the, uh, the downstream surgeon at Scripps testified, and uh, they were powerful witnesses. How did you go about learning the story that you were going to tell that I'm sure became the cross-examination of this doctor? Yeah. So we really spent time trying to understand what his motivation was, you know, understand his family situation, understand where he was going, understand what he might have been feeling when he when he opened up that arm and saw what he was dealing with. Uh, we had a nurse anesthetist who was in the OR, a retired uh, military guy who had assisted in that surgery, who, who when he saw what was going on said, that's necrotizing fasciitis, but was just blown off by the surgeon. And so we really reenacted those scenes, uh, you know, in our office and, and really tried to get inside the hide of that doctor and, and come up with an approach. So what did you learn in doing that? We learned that he was scared, you know, that he uh, was in over his head and that, uh, and that he wanted to go on vacation and that that constellation of factors led him to make, make bad choices, not negligent choices, but actually affirmatively deliberate choices, intentional choices that were just wrong, you know, that he was going to uh, not do the definitive surgery the guy needed, that he was going to uh, get him out of his hospital at any cost and and send him to a place that had already turned him down uh, out of fear, out of not wanting to address the problem himself, and, and out of wanting to go on vacation. So... Tell us about his cross-examination. So really his cross-examination dealt with all those things. Uh, and, and it dealt with uh, the evidence that he had. And we engaged with the medical record and, 
you know, a lot. This is 90% uh, perspiration and 10% inspiration trial work, right? And so we had really engaged with a medical record, and we and we had shown how there was a a draft operative report of that first surgery that detailed findings that were not in the final report. Uh, and that report had come to light only because it went in the ambulance with him to the second hospital. Uh, and because the, the final report, the original shop showed none of that. And so that was an important part of the cross-examination showing this, you know, this is what you did first, this is what you saw, and just told our story of what was really there at that time. And then, uh, you know, some of these things, you know, beat, beat with a, you know, you don't hit the jury over the head with a hammer with it. You just point out and, you know, you, you uh, left for vacation that afternoon. You know, within 10 minutes of him getting in that ambulance, uh, you, you were on your way to Palm Springs for a holiday. Now, we didn't, you know, belabor that because you want the jury to draw their own conclusion about that. You know, you don't want to, uh, we never, I, I didn't, uh, I always think that it's not, I don't want to be angry as the lawyer. I want the jury to be angry. So I was, you know, our cross-examination of him was pretty direct and pretty, we told our story, you know, and this is what happened to, you, to your guy. This is what he looked like the next day. And we just walked through all the evidence and this is what you did. And that story told in a, and it, and, we use deliberate language, like you had a choice here. These were your choices, right? And he couldn't deny that he had a choice to do X, Y, or Z, and this is what he chose. So we, we tried to be deliberate about our language and about the options that the doctor had. And how did you get the jury to fall in love with your client? So that was a, uh, a piece of uh, we had not all of the children, but many of the children testified. Um, we did a lot of work with them, so they would each have a little vignette, and it wouldn't be redundant. And there wasn't a lot. There really wasn't a lot of rich, you know, uh, evidence for this guy about what he did. You know, he wasn't a guy who walked around with an iPhone doing selfies. But we were able to to put together a really nice board, you know, that we'd put up. Uh, on the screen, I think the visuals are important. You know, where where uh, you know, kind of with a hub and scope, a hub and spoke situation. You know, showing different pieces of his life, and and we did manage to. Find, oh, it wasn't easy to find pictures, nice pictures of him with each kid, and and him coaching and those kinds of things. So we use those visual, those images to anchor him as a good guy and not some kind of a you know, the, the meth addict they were trying to portray him as and, uh, and just told nice stories about, about him. And even though we weren't making a wage loss claim because he really didn't have a, a big loss of earnings history, uh, we still told some vignettes with his dad who had the family prone pain business about the kind of worker he was and, and, uh, just to show that he was a responsible guy and, and, uh, and a good person. So that, that was all of that. So what surprised you in the trial? So the first surprise uh, was during voir dire. We, uh, we had an interesting panel. You know, we had a, a mix of people. We had a, uh, a uh, customs, a border patrol supervisor, 
uh, we had uh, a whole range of people, some stay-at-home moms, some uh, a variety of workers, but there was a doctor on the panel. And uh, that was really a huge decision we faced. Uh, you know, intuitively and by the book, uh, you would never leave a doctor on a jury like this, right? Because we're going after a hospital and a doctor. But my feeling was, after spending some time with him and thinking about my case, that uh, that he would be okay for us and that we really needed somebody who would understand the medicine and who would also think about significant numbers because, you know, the family was dirt poor and the the there's not necessarily... We didn't have a lot of people with a lot of money on that jury. It was kind of it was a pretty blue collar jury, and with the exception of this doctor. And so when I finally uh, reversed roles with him and thought about the case he was going to see, I thought about our our medical people were going to testify, our ret- our retired veteran uh, certified nurse anesthetist, our our former Navy uh, flight surgeon at Scripps who spent 24 hours trying to save this guy's life. I thought he's going to identify more with our people than with their hired gun experts and their, uh, and certainly the surgeon who, who made the lazy, deliberate decision to, to turf the guy. And so we took a big risk and left that, that doctor on the jury. So that, you know, I think that was a surprising thing that we did, but that, um, you know, worked out for us. Why was this case important? How did, let me change that. How did it have a profound impact on you? I would say on, on a number of different levels. On a personal level, I felt a lot of love for his family. For the, the, his parents were both still alive and great people, and they really mourned the loss of their son who they saw as kind of carrying on their family tradition they'd been there you know for a couple generations and 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 even though he had such a huge life with several different you know women and all these different children they all he had managed to have a loving relationship with each of them and and so for me that was a lesson that uh you know, never to judge people by their life circumstances. You know, everybody has uh, greatness in them, and, and, and people, whoever they are, can be wonderful people and do really, and really be uh, responsible, loving parents, you know? And, and, uh, and so that was important for me on a personal level. On a professional level, it was obviously a challenge to come into the case that close to a retrial and have to absorb everything that happened in the first trial and reframe it and then go down there and do it. And uh, and it was satisfying to be able to do it and to bring it home. And, and so that was just professionally satisfying. And then uh, to have the opportunity, this was my first opportunity in the courtroom with uh, one of my two daughters who practiced with me. And it was very satisfying to have Margot there with me, uh, really supporting the trial effort, and so quick on her feet with uh, with all the evidence. You know, the it was great. Uh, a, a perfect uh, example of it is in closing arguments. You know, we 
we always try and anticipate what they're going to do in their closing for a rebuttal, you know. And so you have some, I had some stuff prepared, but uh, the defense lawyers, as they will, get up and misrepresent the evidence and the testimony. And she was just on the fly with the transcript. And so by the time I got up, she had slides showing the true testimony. She modified the work that I, the, the pieces that we had. And so as I'm walking through my rebuttal, it's like, actually, this is what happened, you know. And, and so that was just fun teamwork and great to be able to work with her. Where is Brooks Cutter's connection to this case? You know, I, I connected on, to it on a number of levels. Um, you know, I'm a guy who lost my mom when I was nine. So there were kids that young in the, of his 12. Uh, so I really felt like I connected to and understood their loss. Uh, I connected to it uh, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, I'm, I always feel strongly about uh, corporate indifference. Our defendant was the corporation that employed this doctor and the doctor uh, about personal and corporate you know, indifference or affirmative misconduct. That That is just something that I feel strongly about. So, um, yeah, those were probably the main connections for me. Did losing your mom at such a young age have anything to do with your story? Yeah, I mean, uh, you mean my personal story? Yes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's uh, one of those things that uh, changes you and the, changes the course of your life in all sorts of ways. And, and so you definitely take that on board, and, and I think it helps me relate to the losses of some of the people we represent. Is that why you became a trial lawyer? Maybe. I mean, I think that's really why I became a trial is a combination of things. You know, uh, my dad was a diplomat, uh, foreign service, and I, he uh, had a strong belief in public service, but I didn't like how um, kind of bureaucratic and under the control of political, of other people's decisions that his career path was. I mean, he had a successful career, but you know, it was kind of a, at a whim whether we next went to Caracas or to Spain or wherever. And I just thought, I want a life where I have more personal agency and more ability to to do, to control my own destiny. And, and having a profession like law where you could help people but also, you know, decide your path appealed to me. And you're one of those rare lawyers where... You came out of Stanford and have a, an impeccable pedigree, and you're a trial lawyer. You're creative. You're representing people and using that other side of your brain. And how do you do that? Well, I think you know, trial lawyers college has been a big part of that. I, mean, I think it's pretty easy to get uh, to get hardened and to move away from, you know, why you originally started doing something. But what we do, you know, the work we do in the college is all about working on yourself and understanding uh, and finding your personal connection to the story. And if, and if you're always renewing and doing that, 
um, and getting to know the people that you represent, then I think um, it keeps you in touch with your uh, creative side. We often get the question from young lawyers, what should we do to grow and learn? What advice do you have? I, I think you have to get in there and do it. I think yeah, there's no substitute for doing it, you know, but I think there's a right and a wrong way to do it. I, I don't think it's just about uh, quantity. I think it's about quality. So, uh, you know, there's a school of thought that uh, just spending time in the courtroom is is all that matters. But um, uh, I, I don't agree with that. I mean, I think it's important to get in there in the courtroom and be on your feet. But it's the preparation that you do before you get into the courtroom that enables you to be effective in the courtroom. And you can't shortcut that, you know. Uh, there's that 10,000 hours thing, you know, that uh, people have written about. But uh, you don't get into, you know, an airplane as a and be a good pilot uh, of a big jet uh, right away. You know, you start small and you do your homework and you study and you work hard and, and then you get opportunity. And so I don't, I, I mean, I've worked, been lucky to work with some very talented people, but the, uh, the most talented people, oddly enough, are the people who work the hardest. You know, it's not a coincidence. It's the, you know, there are people who get big verdicts, uh, but because of their talent, but the people who consistently do the best work for their clients are the people who uh, combine that talent with genuine hard work and, and caring about the people they represent. Do you have any books that you can recommend for young lawyers or videos or other sources of inspiration? Yeah, I mean, I obviously I think that... Um, you know, Jerry Spence's books are great, uh, starting with Gunning for Justice. You know, it's the original classic with the Silkwood story and all that. And, and of course, he's got many more kind of direct method books um, that I think are terrific. Um, there's a lot of great information out there. I mean, our, I think our Trilor community is pretty open. You know, if you go to a COC event um, or, a, or a J event, you're going to pick up some nuggets. And uh, the only thing I would say, though, is that we all are shameless about taking each other's great little tweaks and vignettes and all that, but you have to make them your own. You know, if I were to get up and try and directly use, you know, one of Jerry Spence's closings or, or you know, one of some, one of some other great trial lawyer's closings, it, it wouldn't ring it would fall flat because no matter how well i delivered it the jury would know it wasn't my story you know so take the idea the the ideas that you're hearing but then find a way to make them your own well brooks thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us and thanks for the great teaching that you do all over the country and and thanks on behalf of your clients for being a phenomenal lawyer and and fighting and getting justice. Thanks for having me, Scott. Thank you for joining us today for Trial Lawyer Talk. 
If you like the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could give us a good review on iTunes, and I'd love to get your feedback. You can reach me at www.scottglovsky.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-G-L-O-V-S-K-Y.com. And I'd love to hear your feedback. You can also check out the book that I published called Fighting Health Insurance Denials, A Primer for Lawyers. That's on Amazon. Uh, I put the book together based on 20 years of suing health insurance companies for denying medical care to people, and it provides a general outline of how to fight health insurance denials. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you in the next episode.